It's time to accelerate. Hi, friends. This is Andy. Welcome to episode 678. That's 678 of Accelerate, the sales podcast of record. I've got a fun show lined up for you today. Joining me is John Asher. John is CEO of Asher Strategies, he's a keynote speaker and best-selling author. And also, I'm joined again today by my great friend, Bridget Gleason. You might have noticed Bridget hasn't been on some recent episodes. You know, we're both working hard to grow our respective companies, traveling a lot, so it's been, been pretty difficult to sync our schedules to record, but more is coming up, I, I guarantee it. So before I get to John, I want to talk to you about the sales house. I mean, the sales house, as I've talked about in the past, is the B2B sales education accelerator. You know, I created the sales house for the curious, smart B2B seller. So if take a moment here, picture yourself 10 years into the future. Think about what you want to have accomplished at that point, how you've succeeded financially, personally, career-wise. Now, write down, physically write down, take a pen, write down what you think you need to learn in order to make that future a reality. Because if you come into the sales house, that's what you're going to learn, at least for your sales career. I mean, this is not just an education. This is, this is a movement to movement to become who you want to be, to become the best version of you, to be great on your terms. So come invest a few minutes a day in the sales house. You get unlimited access to me and every bit of sales wisdom I've acquired from my hugely successful career in sales. And you get access to a roster of world-class experts sharing their expertise. And you get unlimited access to our live coaching hours, live workshops, and our in-person meetups. So remember, it's, selling's hard and you don't have to sell alone. The whole sales house community is here to help. So visit thesaleshouse.com forward slash accelerate. That is thesaleshouse.com forward slash accelerate. Take advantage of our special $1 trial offer for listeners of Accelerate. We'll see you inside the house. All right, let's jump into it with my guest today, John Asher, CEO of Asher Strategies, keynote speaker, best-selling author, and one of the really smart guys about sales. And today we're going to talk about the five factors for sales success that John has identified through his research. Now, the five factors he identifies are product knowledge, sales aptitude, sales skills, motivation, and sales process. And John says that I have 25 million salespeople selling either B2B or B2G in the U.S. Only 5 million are elite, and they master these factors. So, yeah, 20%. So, that's why I started the sales houses, so we can change that ratio. So, in our conversation, we're going to dive into how you can master these five success factors. All right, John, welcome to the show. Great to be here, Andy. Well, great to meet you finally. So, um, where are you based? I'm uh, born and raised in Washington, D.C., one of the few. <laughs> wow. Okay. So, born and raised. I mean, you've, I know you've, you've served elsewhere when you were serving uh, in the Navy for our country, but, but yep. uh, always return back to D.C.? Yep. Always come back to D.C. Got it. A great, great town. You know, good, good museums, good monuments, good, oh, yeah. food, good sports. It's yeah. a great town. Great town. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I imagine the 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 tone of the town probably changes every four years or so. But does... that's why I'm one of the few that the the, uh, the migration in and out every actually every two years with Congress turning with Congress over. Congress true, right? I mean, do you see that? I mean, <laughs> not to bore our listeners before I get started, but like your neighbors change a lot. Oh yeah, everything changes because just one congressman has aides, and there's contractors and consultants and lobbyists, and so. Pretty crazy. Yeah. Okay. Well, a lot of like I said, short-term residents, I guess, of, of DC. Yeah. Well, we're gonna talk about sales today. That's why people 
paying the big bucks to listen to this podcast. Actually, it's free. But um, so, uh, <laughs> so I want to talk about success factors for sales. And you've you've created some content around this, and uh, you had a video on your site about five factors for success in sales. Product knowledge, sales aptitude, sales skills, motivation, and sales process. Now that was the order you listed them. Was there was there a logic behind the order, or in terms of you know product knowledge being first, or in terms of importance, or was that just sort of a random listing? Well, uh, in this context, you know, Harvard has the biggest research spells and had it for many many years. And right now, there's about 25 million hunter salespeople in our country. And a typical Pareto principle, about 5 million are pretty good, really elite, but 20 million aren't so hot, typically untrained. So when you watch the elite salespeople, there's those five factors operating together in pretty much the perfect storm for sales. Well, before I go on, so 25 million salespeople? Yep. Wow. I mean, that's from Harvard? I mean, the reason I'm I'm questioning is just that… Yeah, the, the stats I've read about the single largest profession in the United States is actually truck driver. It's three and a half million. So I was wondering where we get 25 million salespeople, whether that includes retail clerks and so on. That's actually the combination of ones that sell business to business or business to government. Okay. There's about 25 of them. Wow. All right. That, that, uh, that number is much higher than I would have thought. Okay. Yeah. Th- there's actually about three main in Canada. Okay. All right. And in China, about 50 million. <laughs> That's not surprising. Yeah. And probably many more on the way. So, yeah, sure. I mean, as that economy develops. So, um, all right. So, again, it's just sort of back to the question about, you know, is there a, a priority in the way you, you sequence them? You put product knowledge first, sales aptitude, sales skills third, motivation fourth, sales process fifth. Well, the, the, if you take product knowledge first, um, it's it's pretty much binary. So many in today's technology environment, many uh, buyers, especially higher level buyers, would much rather deal with a subject matter expert with deep uh, product knowledge mm-hmm. than with a salesperson with shallow technical knowledge who's just trying to sell them something. Right. So product knowledge uh, gives salespeople power, confidence. They can really add value to prospects and suspects. If you don't have it, and the customer senses that, then you're pretty much done. So product knowledge is pretty much binary. You, you really have to have it. Or be able to manage the resources internally at your, your company to be able to provide the information the, comp- the customer needs. So what you, the way you typically see that manifested is a salesperson will have enough product knowledge, but if the customer needs to peel back the onion on, say, the software, then you bring in a sales engineer. Mm-hmm. So in some cases, it's a combination of a salesperson and a sales engineer, or a technology person. Right, right. Um, but it seems like in some cases now we're we're trying to automate that to a certain degree. The product knowledge, in the sense that you know the whole trend with sales enablement is you know we use technology to provide the content the customer needs at specific points in time in their their buying journey, which great sounds great, but yeah. you know my experience has been that. You know, they don't want to read a white paper. They want to talk to somebody. I agree with you. And and is, do you see that as sort of a trend that that I see certainly that that and this is not about product knowledge specifically, but it's sort of ramifications that that yeah, you know, there's companies that are sort of trying to not say automate salespeople out of it, but think that they can automate things that really are 
functions that need to be delivered by a human. I would agree. You know, when you look at the um, chatbots, um, they're they're a great uh, resource for salespeople. But if if they're they're actually pretty good now, you know, they can sense sure. the emotion from the other person. And if the emotion isn't right, then they're going to shift it right back to the to the real person. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and chatbots are a great a great tool. I mean, we're going to be using them on a, a website we're we're launching shortly. But but at some point, as you said, you you need that that person. I, I worry about companies trying to move too fast, too far, too fast on sort of the, some of the automation. And I think we're seeing at least, and I see, I think we're seeing it in when you certainly look at industry reports about sales productivity and performance in general being sort of falling, if you will, and heading in the wrong yeah. direction, that this is one of the causes that that people are, you know, innately uncomfortable, let's say, dealing with 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 people. And so okay, if I can if I can do this automatically with you know serving up a piece of content, hey, that's great. But then they lose that impact of actually speaking to the person. Yeah. And I'm sure you know this if it's a real simple sale like a product, you don't need, actually need a person. But right. if it's a complex sale, then you gotta have a person. In fact, the customer wants the person. That's the thing where I think the disconnect is. The customer wants that validation coming from a human as opposed to reading a, a piece of content, even whether it's a case study or whatever. Right. Agree. The next thing closest to a human is a video, as I'm sure you know. And so many, many uh, people would would uh, much rather see a video than try to read words on a website. In fact, I've, I've read that in a couple of years, we'll either be listening to podcasts or watching videos. We won't be reading much on the internet. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's that's true. I think to some degree, it's it, there was a an article actually in the Washington Post this morning about a study that just came out about the decline in casual reading among the American population. That's actually it's fallen uh, since two thousand four has fallen like. Close to fifty percent in terms of the time people spend casual, doing casual reading. So I'm, I'm yeah. going to assume that's you know, outside work context, and that's <laughs> that to me. That's kind of frightening. Uh, well, it's kind of frightening to some degree. So to give you some physics and optics behind this, um, the comprehension rate of our brains for video is sixty thousand times as fast than reading words. And sure. I know you know you've heard this: a picture's worth a thousand words. Well, a video is a is a um, thirty frames per second, or thirty pictures per second. Mm-hmm. So most people much rather watch a video than read words. From that, you know, my my wife uses YouTube. Any problem she's got, she goes to YouTube. Sure, sure. And in every case is the video, which you can learn quickly what to do with your phones all screwed up and supposed to try to read something about it. it would be crazy. Yeah. Well, it's interesting though that that. You know, without getting too you know metaphysical about the whole thing, is is great for problem solving. You know, point point solutions, but yep. for the bigger issues, the bigger concerns, the ones that require you know something to be thought through, an issue, and and I think we have a lot of these in sales these days. Books are still the best place to to learn, and so man, one of my concerns is when I, I was talking to an audience the other night about this is is. You know how you educate yourself is that you know it's great to have the the point solutions. You know you want to provide people with bite sized things they can consume that help them get a little bit smarter. But at some point, you got to go deep to really gain a you know a, a fundamental understanding. And it seems again like that's something else that we're in danger of losing. Yep, I agree. With you. <laughs> so what's the answer? Uh, 
uh, damn if I know what the answer is to that one, Andy. <laughs> I'm, just a, I'm just a sales guy. Yeah. Uh, sure, sure. That's why I brought you on the show today. All right. Well, we'll come back to the big questions in a bit. So, all right. So, second. So, on your- I would just say the second factor is sales aptitude. And that means our personality and how it fits for sales. Some people have a lot of that. Some people don't have much. Well, but let's talk about that because this is a, a big topic we hear about time. And because when you talk about sales aptitude, people sort of think we're sort of marching down that path to say salespeople are born, not made. And is that what you're saying? Well, I'm saying they're born and made. So of the five factors, one is sales aptitude. The other are made. you got to learn them. you got to learn skills. got to learn product knowledge, that sort of thing. Well, how important is what you consider, you said, I think you call it natural sales talent. And, and well, how would, you, how would you quantify or what natural sales talent is? If you do a um, meta-analysis, in other words, a summary of mm-hmm. a whole lot of studies from the big HR and sales institutes, Aptitude accounts for about 50% of sales results, and the other four factors, the other 50%. So aptitude isn't everything, but it is fairly significant. And if we're hiring salespeople without it, you're really tying one arm behind your back. So what is that, though, this aptitude? This, this is, and this is you know, pushing on it because I, I think that's something that that's really sort of crucial because, A, we do a lousy job of hiring in sales typically, right? Yeah. And And... A lot of traditional sales hiring has been around these you know, stereotypical aptitudes that supposedly people are supposed to possess, right? And yet, yeah, you know, there's also research that's showing that you know you want neither extroverts or introverts. You know, you want people who are ambiverts. Um, which, regardless of whether that's the case or not, is is how do we really know what the right aptitude is? Because I've I've had great success. I'm sure you have in your career. Um, Hiring and managing people that span the spectrum from, <laughs> and I mean the spectrum, I mean from guys who are pathologically shy, who are incredible salespeople, to the extroverts that um, were succeeded as well. So if you, if you um, look at all the various aptitude assessments, there's 21 of them, really. I've taken them all. All seven of our partners have taken them. We've all read the technical manuals. Mm-hmm. And the one we recommend has four attributes and the, it's the only one that has all, all four. It's both a hiring and development tool. Which, which and, assessment is that? It's called the APQ, Advanced Personality Questionnaire. So it's both a sales, it's both a hiring and development uh, tool. It's tuned to help people um, uh, attain higher levels of emotional intelligence. It's got big correlation studies behind it. And... It's designed so that it cannot be gamed. And if it's gamed by the applicant, the company's notified. So it's the only assessment that's got all four of those attributes, and it measures nine personality characteristics. And as you listen to the characteristics, you can pretty much, if, if you've been experienced in sales, know whether you'd want somebody to have a high amount of that characteristic, a moderate amount, or a low amount. An example would be a goal orientation. So you really want salespeople to have a high goal orientation. You want them to be driven to make you know to make stuff happen. Another would be detail orientation. You don't want a hunter salesperson uh, getting all bogged down in analysis paralysis. Now a sales engineer, different job. You would want high detail orientation. So there's nine of those traits, all the sum of which describe an overall personality. 
And when you hear each one of the traits, it's fairly obvious whether you want a lot of it, a moderate amount of it, or not much of it. Those are two examples. Sure. So you you mentioned there's high correlation studies. And I, I smile when I say that because you know, if you're a company that is using this across the board and you hire your entire sales team based on that, and your sales team breaks into the normal Pareto distribution of performance, it really doesn't correlate to performance because you've used it on 100% of your people thinking they're all going to be fit the profile and only 20% of them are good. So isn't by definition, it's, it's really hard. To me, it's like these are data points that you want to use in the context of everything else you're using to assess and judge whether to hire somebody. But but isn't it sort of a myth that they really correlate? Given that, uh, <laughs> given that by by definition, if you use it to hire all your sales team, it only works in 20% of the cases. So if you hire all of your salespeople and they have a high aptitude for sales, you're much more likely to get more sales than if you just have a, you know, a bell curve. And you wouldn't want to hire a bell curve. You wouldn't want to hire uh, salespeople, a few of which have a high aptitude, a few have a low, and, a, and, and most have a moderate. That would be a typical general population bell curve. That isn't what you want for a sales force. Sure. You want people with a high aptitude. Sure. But the point is you can hire all people with high aptitude and they still and this and the reason I'm bringing this up is just because I know yeah. companies that over rely on what they get from the assessments to make hiring decisions and then end up being disappointed that they've used them and then they stop using them. And I'm like, no. <laughs> you know, they're <laughs> they're a great single data point that you consider in the course of hiring, but they shouldn't be the sole reason and justification for hiring somebody. I totally agree. Yeah. So remember, there's, there's factors. There's product knowledge, selling skills, motivation, sales process, and aptitude. It's just aptitude accounts for 50% of results. <laughs> so if you have high aptitude salespeople and they've got all the other factors, then you have a great salesperson. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I again, I struggle, I struggle with this idea of that there's a natural aptitude for sales. I mean, I I think some of the features, things things you talk about that APQ test tests for, maybe more decisive than some of the things that that people normally look for. But I, the reason I love, you know, good and a good assessment is that I think we have to break. We still have to break hiring managers out of the mold of saying, look, when they put together their their job description or their job posting. It's, you know, I want a hunter. I want an extrovert. I want a blah, 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 blah. And what the customer wants is an open-minded, you know, empathetic problem solver. And there's rarely a match between what the customer wants from us and what the company stereotypically, a company stereotypically tries to hire. Um, that actually isn't so much my experience. And and the, and the reason is, is you can take a, a highly goal-oriented person um, but if they have the right skills, know how to listen to the customer, be patient, hear the customer out before they offer a solution, then they got the combination of the aptitude and the skills, life's pretty good, and the product knowledge, then it's good. Sure, if they do. So you, you need all five factors to be elite. All right, well, let's, let's dive into the next one. So, sales skills. So, when we say sales skills, excuse me for tripping over my tongue, <laughs> what are we really referring to? Well, if you extract from the 15 largest sales training institutes, I've been them all, and you take all the good stuff from about 300 books on sales, I've read all those too. I know mm-hmm. it sounds like a lot, but I've been to China 103 times, so I'll read 
I'll read two sales books going over, one coming back after a while it ends up. So if you extract the best techniques, the best um, ideas, modernize it, go to the chaff and roll up. You'll come to skills, people. First is focus on a few top opportunities. In other words, qualify fast. Uh, second is do great research on the on the buyer themselves, the company, the industry, their competition, that sort of thing. Three is get yourself an inside coach, the concept from the Noah Hyman uh, training. Mm -hmm. Match and mirror personality styles. Uh, skill four from Dale Carnegie, build rapport. And we now know from this uh, worldwide forum of neuroscientists in 70 countries, we now we have great insight now into how to build better rapport than we ever did before. Um, five is ask questions and listen to really understand this, the spin selling idea. Let's step back for a second for the rapport. So what's the, what's the revelation that the neuroscientists have about building rapport? So the, there's been this worldwide forum in 70 countries of neuroscientists um, sharing their um, uh, studies, their research. And if you ask them, why are you guys doing this? They'll say, other than academic reasons, they'll say, well, we want insight into human relations, human communications, mm -hmm. decision-making. And if you ask, well, how does this apply to, to sales? You'll either get a blank stare <laughs> or they'll say, what do you mean by sales? So our company in the last three years has really taken all those studies and boiled it down to techniques salespeople can use uh, to close deals faster. And to give you one example, mm -hmm. there are, and these come from the these latest functional MRI uh, mm -hmm. machine studies where a, where a buyer's wearing a helmet with an MRI machine built in. So you can see as you try various techniques, uh, what wakes up what part of the brain, the decision-making, non-decision-making, that sort of thing. And we now know there's six stimuli that will wake up the buyer's decision-making brain. So if you're with a buyer and you're not waking, you're not using a lot, you know, any of those uh, stimuli, then closing rates would be pretty much zero. And then there are about 50 cognitive biases mm -hmm. that apply to sales. So the great salespeople have knowledge of the six stimuli, how to wake the buyer's old brain up, and how to influence buyers with those 50 uh, cognitive biases. Well, give us an example of one of the stimuli. The first stimuli is uh, from the reptilian and emotional brain, both over 150 million years old, mm -hmm. is uh, for all of us, we're me, uh, me, me, me focus. So for all of us, our old brain's all about our own safety, own happiness, uh, our own uh, um, success. So when you watch an average salesperson give a presentation, here's their architecture. Here's the vision of our company. Here's a picture of our executive team and our facilities. Mm -hmm. Here's a list of our seven integrated uh, cybersecurity solutions. Let's talk about the details of cybersecurity uh, solutions. Oh. So the elite salespeople have a time to give a presentation. It's upside down from what the average salespeople give. And their first slide is always, here is our understanding of your needs. Mm -hmm. Now, by your great research, your inside coach, you've got that pretty well nailed, these last functional MRI machines show that it'll cause an immediate conversation with the buyer. And once that big conversation's over about their needs, how many slides in our 21-slide deck of slides do we have to show? Not too many. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Another example of that same stimulus is um, for all of us, um, for most buyers, um, so I'll just pose the question. Would most uh, buyers' old brains be stimulated by listening to salespeople talk? So the obvious answer is no. Mm -hmm. And so if you can get another person, back to rapport building, you can get another person talking about their passion, their issue, Mm -hmm. where they came from, how they started their company. More of the positive hormones, dopamine, serotonin, and oxytocin are released in their brain than during romance (laughs) or a great meal. Mm Mm-hmm. So we now know the science behind listening, for example, and the science about why you should get to the customer to talk about their needs and the science behind what a great presentation looks like. So that's an example of one of the stimuli. Sure. So six stimuli, 52, I've always read 52 cognitive biases, sales, 50, 52, whatever. Yeah, yeah, right. So, but we can't expect salespeople to remember 52 cognitive biases, and I think most salespeople would be challenged to, to, to remember the six stimuli. So how do we simplify this for them so that they, they retain it? So we have uh, training courses, our company does, and the, the basic training course covers the six stimuli and about 10 of the cognitive biases. The advanced sales training covers it all. Mm-hmm. And you do role-playing and exercises so, you know, so the ideas stick. So it's a matter of training, that's all. And most of it is, frankly, not rocket science. You know, a co- one cognitive bias is compliment the buyer as soon as you can. Mm-hmm. And because our old brains are are uh, t- totally, uh, you know, a lightning bolt goes up on our old brain, we, any of us get a compliment. We, right. uh, we immediately smile. Right. So that doesn't, so in training, you don't, you don't compliment, you learn, okay, we can't compliment the buyer about their shirt. That would be stupid. So do great research. Compliment the buyer about a video you watched on their website or their website or their facilities or how you were treated by the receptionist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So when you compliment the buyer, they want to compliment you back. Okay. That's just an example of a, Sure. You know, that's not, that's not too hard to remember. No, but I, I think it brings up, you know, the point is, I think, for people listening is that you, know, you need to continue to educate yourself about – you know, the science behind sales, the science behind influence, the science behind rapport building, as you talked about. Um, and I think with all these things, that it's important to remember, too, I think, because I, you know, I was talking to a group recently that that were, I don't want to say intimidated by it, but I mean, you know, it wasn't as approachable and accessible for them. And, and I think the thing that, that really is important for people to understand is with all these things is that the studies are not absolute. You know that that you know even Daniel Kahneman and Tversky with their work, you know they'd do their studies and yeah, forty to fifty percent of the people would respond a certain way, right? It wasn't like everybody sure. does. So, but you should be aware of the fact that this is a tendency. This is something that that exists. And so yeah, yeah, right. yeah. That, that that's the right word. That's the right word. It's their tendencies or rules of thumb or shortcuts right. or biases. Not, yeah, not, not black and white. None of them. None of them work every time. That's well, for right, sure. and that's and that's the thing that I think is a disservice. We sometimes do. We, the sales industry, if you will, is present these things as black and white when they're not. And, they're not. I totally agree. And there's yeah, there's even been an issue with you know Kahneman with some of his work, and that you know hasn't other scientists haven't been able to replicate it, the results. So yeah, you know, we always have to look at these things and say, okay, what's what's useful here for me? Yeah. 
No, I, I um, um, you know, when Kahneman's thinking Fislow in his appendix in the book, uh, it's a white paper. He and um, his partner, I forget the guy's name. Amos, wrote, Amos Tversky, yeah. Yeah, that, that won them the Nobel Prize for decision-making and, and economics. And I honestly had to read that thing five times mm-hmm. <laughs> before I got it. <laughs> yeah. I, there's many, many words that I had to look up to make sure I understood it. Yeah. Well, it's it's funny though. We've had this this there is this you know thing going on in the whole social psychology field now about replicability of studies, and you know what they found is that too many of these studies were done on small sample sizes and can't be replicated. So exactly, even though we have had this great revolution in social psychology and understanding of the brain and influence and so on, it's still a developing science. Right. Well, here's here's an example of another bias. It's called the reciprocity bias. Mm-hmm. In China, it's called the wrenching. And that is, if you give somebody something, then their old brain is, is at act. And the way you see it play out is, if you're a salesperson, mm-hmm. and you bring, you bring the buyer something, maybe a book, traction that you've read, and your friends got a lot out of, then the buyer's old brain, not the mm-hmm. logical, but their old brain is now energized to give you something back. Mm-hmm. And what usually manifests is better insight into their issues. Does it happen every time? Of course not, right? But most times it does. Another example would be you're at a trade show, and every booth has a prop, and many many of them are stupid props, mm-hmm. you know, that sort of thing. If you actually take the prop, the probability that you will listen to their pitch goes way up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Does it go way up the same amount for everybody? Of course not. They're just, as you said, they're tendencies, biases. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's I said we need to understand them that in that light, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and reciprocity, obviously, you know, one that Cialdini talked about in his book and sort of popularized is is yeah. big. So, um, motivation is your fourth one, and then let's talk about sales process because I think we're going to run out of time here before too long. Is is um, so sales process is typically the company's job. Right. So when you watch the great salespeople, good product knowledge, uh, good selling skills, charged up and self-motivated, got the natural talent, and the fifth, the company has the great sales and marketing processes to support the salesperson. And to give you just one example on how companies screw this up is, let's just say, Andy, that you're one of my, I'm the sales manager and you're one of my sales guys. Mm-hmm. And You've been doing a great job for several years. You've built up eight accounts that you're the account manager of. And for this coming year, I'm, I'm giving you the two jobs. Keep managing those accounts and bring in five new accounts. And then at the end of the year, you haven't brought any in. Mm-hmm. So whose fault is it? Yours or mine? Mm-hmm. Obviously mine. Right. If you were a great hunter salesperson who had just had more time, you could bring in more, uh, more business, then I should have given you an assistant to help you manage all the day-to-day admin trivia stuff with those eight accounts. So you see companies screw up the process, you know, more often than not. Well, and so here's a question for you, because, you know, you've, you work with a wide range of companies as well, is, is I see that, and this is perhaps more a tendency perhaps in companies that have really embraced inside sales, is that processes seem a little inflexible and, and unbending and not really geared to optimize the strengths and capabilities of all the individuals. Because it's more about, I've got an activity, I've got a metric we need to hit as a manager, I'm incented on certain metrics. 
And and what, I, what I'm seeing is that that it's unusual. At least the company that I've been talking to in the last year or two is to have a, a company that says, "Yeah, we really want you know this person. You know, we want to optimize the skills of every person." But and what they do is now we really want them just to hit the numbers, right? The metrics, the activity metrics, and so on. And I always think back when I started my career is yeah, we had to work for a big company, we had a process, but they were we had the freedom to develop individually. And we didn't all do things the same. And you know, my experience, I'm sure yours maybe reflects this as well, is you know, I ask audiences when I speak to them, you know, what's the one thing that top performers all have in common is they all break the rules to some degree, right? I mean, yeah, there's a process that supports them, but but you know, they they work <laughs> they succeed in spite of the process oftentimes. Um, so it's like, yeah, we too process oriented. We've got too much technology, giving us too much visibility, not too much visibility, giving so much visibility into the sales process these days that you know we've got managers that just sort of manage metrics rather than managing people. So the only comments I I would make on that is that um, you need process because it makes you more efficient, but you don't want excessive process that gets into too much bureaucracy. And in general, when you watch the great salespeople, they'll they'll as I mentioned, there's ten skills we teach. They're in the order that they're used, so they form at least the start of a process. Now. In some cases, so you watch the great salespeople, they march right down the first eight to close a new deal. Sometimes they skip around by necessity. A step's already been done. Or uh, you don't need that step. And now that's the kind of the science, have a process. The art is many salespeople will accomplish those steps differently, mm-hmm. which is fine. This is fine. So as long as you follow the process in general, sometimes skip stuff if you need to or it's already been done. And you know how to uh, use the skills, then you got the good combination of the simple, effective process uh, and the person who's got the skills and the product knowledge to make it work. Yeah, well, I think this is this is a challenge for many managers these days because I said they're more comfortable on the, the metric side than on the managing people side, and the deviations sort of freak them out. The, the other thing I've so I've I've actually trained eighty thousand salespeople, and mm-hmm. many many of them are elite. And so one of one of my observations has been this: if you have somebody with all five factors in alignment, especially with this high aptitude, you do not have to measure any metrics. The only metric you need to measure for those people is results. Mm-hmm. If you take people who don't have this natural talent and who really don't want to pick up the phone, you know, and that sort of stuff, Right. well, then you need metrics, or they can't be effective. Well, I agree 100%. It's a great way to end the conversation, as a matter of fact. So, yeah. <laughs> so John, thank you very much. So tell people how they can find out more about you. Good. By the way, before I, before I do that, um, aren't you coming to the Institute for Sales Excellence here pretty soon in McLean, Virginia? I am, yes, in, in June, July, excuse me, yes. Good. So I'll see you there. Our company is one of the three platinum sponsors of oh, the Institute. Well, I've, I've been a presenter probably at least five times. Oh, good. Well, I look forward to uh, look forward to meeting you in person there, yes? Yeah, yeah. So if people want to contact us, just go to the website, asherstrategies.com. All right. Perfect. All right, John, thank you very much. Look forward to talking thank you, to you. Andy. Yeah, great talking to you. Okay, thanks, John. Up next, Captain Fantastic, Bridget Gleason. Today, Bridget and I are talking about authenticity in sales. 
authenticity and how that leads to building trust and why you need to break the rules a little to really succeed in sales. So Bridget, how you do? How are you doing? Andy. Andy, Andy. <laughs> Hi. I'm trying Hi. to change it. I think bored if we just keep doing it the same way. Well, we, I thought we hadn't done that one in a while, so I thought it was safe because you, you've been out of action for a while. So even though we you were out, I guess you're back last week and so on. That's true. I, I lost track of time. I'm yes, I've been, uh, I've been back. You've been back. Yeah. I, yeah. We've been so busy with the launch of the sales house that, that, um, <laughs> I've lost track of time okay. here. Yes. Talk about the sales house. Well, I, I, the audience got a, a pitch in the, in, in the intro to the show. So, okay. So we don't, okay. So let's not, bet. let's yeah. not, We'll we'll spare them because uh, yeah, Cause was, okay. right. But as as you and I have discussed, and you're you're on board with this, you're an innately curious, insatiable learner. This is what's propelled you to the heights that you've achieved in your career. Is yeah, that's what sales house is about. Is those people who are curious, who want to take the next step, who want to take all the steps in their career, and know that they need to learn something in order to do it. This is a resource to come in, get a little bit smarter every day to help you. Is like to say the analogy is when and knowledge is like uh, you know when you put money in an investment account and it compounds in value uh, just because you're saving every week in your paycheck, every two weeks in your paycheck, right? Putting it into your four hundred one k, and a year later your four hundred one k is huge. Well, knowledge is the same thing. You know, if you keep storing away a little every day, it just builds on itself and becomes this this a great resource for you. So, That's true. so we're just uh, a unique resource in the sense that we have hundreds of hours of, of courses and content for people to consume about, gosh, 22 different categories of things in sales, virtually everything. It's actually the sort of compound categories. Each category has got sort of two topics in it. So, so it's, it's just a marvelous resource for anybody that's just curious about any aspect of selling any day. I can, they can come in and learn something about it. Thank you. All right. So now you got it. So, so let's talk about, let's talk about trust. This has been, this are two topics I'm, I'm reading a lot about these days. Trust is one and the other one, which is a word that sort of a word from the nineties and it seems to be making a comeback is authenticity. Huh. Now this was, this was, <laughs> I don't know why I say the nineties because I, I think it was the nineties where I just remember that word being used a lot in conversation, right? And it was always sort of earnest conversation, you know, being authentic about things. And then it seemed to have sort of disappeared for a while. But now recently, especially in sales conversations on LinkedIn and Facebook and other places, um, seeing people use it more. And I don't disagree that hmm. being the authentic you is really important, right? I and mean, I think if you try to be somebody that you're not, that's not, yeah, it's it's not uh, congruent with who you are personally in terms of your personality and values and so on. Then, then yeah, people can sense that pretty quickly as you're not being authentic. But what's that mean to you to be authentic? Well, I think I like the word you used, um, congruent. You know that it's it's I'm not I'm not trying to be who I think people want me to be. It, it, I'm not behaving in a way that um, I feel like 
I'm not behaving in a way that I think others want me to mm-hmm. behave. So I'm not trying to be somebody who I'm not. I'm not trying to please other people. I'm, I just kind of stay close to my core and do just the congruency, living in a way and acting in a way that's in alignment with my core beliefs and values and yeah, well, this who pl- I am. I right. Well, and this plays into a topic that, that I'd written about recently as well, which was this idea that, and you and I have touched on this before on the show, is, is that the people who seem to be most successful in any field to me, the common trait, and based on my studies of them, and also study of the literature around success, is that they they are what I call rule breakers, right? That they've they've taken this idea of being authentic to themselves, and sort of I don't know, taken it to an extreme, but been militant about the fact that this is the way they're going to do things, right? That this is what's congruent with their personality, their core values, even if it doesn't really align with the process or procedures or so on that, that um, of the, let's say, the sales organization they work. So they're being authentic to themselves, and I think that actually is a strength. You know, it's, it's a choice they're making to have control over their environment to some degree, which, again, the science has been pretty clear that that's, that is very powerful for people in terms of um, outlook on life and the success they achieve. Yeah, I think it's hard. Think how hard it is. If you're always trying to feel who does everybody want me to because if especially if I'm in a in a group, then I've got a whole bunch of people I need to please. It's just hard. I think that's exhausting work. And when you can funnel and channel that energy just into whatever the task at hand is and not thinking about pretzeling yourself mm-hmm. to be something different. You just have more energy, I think, to do the real work. But isn't that sort of a, a problem or sort of a hole we sort of dig for, especially our new sellers coming on board, the ones with the least amount of experience, is that I think increasingly what I see in sales organizations, it's harder. We're making it harder for them to express that authenticity. You know, that we, we become so, so focused on process and the metrics and so on that, you know, compared to perhaps when you were starting your career where, sure, you had a process and there were metrics that you were, you were certainly measured on. But I would imagine your manager also gave you more leash to sort of develop who you are, your style of selling, and um, see, if, you know, see what works for you. I don't think so. No? Well, I was at Xerox. Well, I was at a we big company had, too, and I my managers allowed me to do that. We had to dress the same. <laughs> we had a very strict dress code. It could be navy. It could be black. It could be gray. It had to be a, a suit. It could be a white shirt. It could be a striped shirt. Right, white. Maybe, maybe not in your case. And so, so... There was a there was definitely a push towards um, some conformity. I don't think we had the same tools today. I, I, I don't remember being encouraged 
to freewheel. I had a lot, a lot of courses on how to do it, a very prescribed mm-hmm. spin, a very prescribed way. They just didn't have as many ways to straight jacket me. <laughs> okay. There weren't as many guardrails around. So I, I guess I well, think but sales- that's an interesting point. Is is <laughs> do you apply those straight jackets and guardrails to your team? I, you know, I, I don't. Okay. And here's why. I'm just not very good at it. I'm not good. I'm not good at it. I'm not good at really strict guardrails because I, um, I, I, I don't like them. And I yeah. look for people that are more intrinsically motivated, but I also, I do like um, process. So I, I feel like the guardrails are important. Okay. I feel like the guardrails are really, really, they're good guides. I think where, here's where I see the problem. Mm-hmm. And I've seen it recently is when someone comes from an environment that is highly prescribed. And they typically do pretty well in those. When they move to an environment like a startup where there's a lot of stuff that we're still building, they're lost. Sure. Because they haven't had to think, they haven't had to think and figure it out. Yeah. And it's, I think it's ever been thus, right? I mean, it's certainly even in the early days of the Valley when, you know, I was at startups and we were looking at hiring people from IBM, right? That was always the thing. You know, or any big company at that time is IBM or Xerox. It's like, hey, yeah, can they really think for themselves? To your point exactly, or are they going to require? And obviously, there were some people who were perfectly capable and did a fantastic job making that transition. And others, though, admittedly, who didn't and couldn't. Yeah, and I guess I see that. Um, I haven't felt inauthentic when following a. So following a process doesn't make me feel inauthentic. Yeah, I don't think it has to. By definition, I don't think. Um, I, I guess what makes me feel inauthentic is it, it was actually more inauthentic. Well, even I was going to say having everybody dress the same way, but that was really just a uniform. It was a it was just a uniform. It wasn't meant to express my personality. It was ex- it was meant to be Xerox. But you couldn't yeah. strip me of my personality, or right. so I guess I did. When do I? When would I? When, where? Where do you see inauthenticity come in in the sales process? Like where? Well, I think when we have this tendency, we see more and more these days for you know sales reps to be scripted and. And while there was always a degree of scripting, you talk about the Xerox process you went through, and you know, as a Burroughs, we wasn't as scripted as or as prescribed, let's say, necessarily as the Xerox way, though there was this very specific way. Um, but it, it, you know, I see this. I talk to you know, sell sales teams, and I talk to people like yourself who run sales teams. And customers, and this sort of seems to be the the feedback where sort of the sort of consistent loop is people that feel constrained or maybe comforted by 
having the script in the routine. Right, could be either one, right? I mean, depending on your personality type. And what that's being reflected on is sort of uh, interactions with buyers that the customers don't value. And you see the research reports on that. And so it's, it's my concern is we see, uh, or I see, is a, a trend where you know, people are so straight-jacketed by the metrics, by the process that, and I've you know, used this example before, is, is, is that they don't ever really think about the customer. And, and I think that's really where you know, the authenticity comes in is you know, how you're relating to a customer. And so it's, it's, I worry we're creating this vicious cycle of, of training generations of salespeople that aren't getting enough of the, the freedom to really develop who they are personally and to optimize their strengths and their skills because the process wins. I, I guess I, I also think about it. Um, did you play the piano? Uh, a little bit and badly, yes. Me I took, too. took lessons for three or four years in, in grade school. Yeah, I took maybe a little bit longer, but they you learn the basics and the classics first. And it's it's only after that that you can go and improvise and mm-hmm. go on and do other things. Mm-hmm. And I guess I think about sales a little bit that way too, that there's a benefit to learning a process and the whys behind it and to practice doing it a certain way until it becomes familiar and until it becomes, until you can make it your own. And well, I but, think, but isn't that one thing that's missing though? For me, when I, look at some of the training that's done and, and sit and watch companies do role plays and so on that with trainers that that's the part that's missing is the why the how the how and, and the repetition the rote that comes through is can be very effectively taught and i see that happen all the time but for me it always seems and especially when I, the feedback i get from sellers and so on is it's yeah it's that why yeah, I would ag- I would agree with that that there's not enough why. I don't again going back to the example of people that are in sellers that are in environments that are highly prescriptive mm-hmm. and this is what you do and you just move from here to here and then you do that that I think it is tough when they come out of it if they're in a different environment if it doesn't have the same guardrails they have a hard time because they haven't, they, they didn't understand the why. And if you don't understand the why, it's very difficult mm-hmm. to take that, you know, lift and shift to another environment. It's very difficult. Yeah, which is, for me, was really one of the top three reasons why I created the sales house is to address that need. As I think I see this, this huge, huge gap where... Sellers aren't getting trained. I don't want to say the word trained. They're getting educated about the why. And and I think it is a problem, as you talked about, um, when people make a transition from one environment to another, assuming you're going to be in this for a career and not just in one job, right? And then you're off doing something else again. 
you need those you need those basics and and they're not only just basics i mean they're behaviors they're habits that you continually improve upon you know throughout your entire career you know the more you learn right the more you learn about it it's like it's not like okay we teach you the basics then you're done i mean for me the basics are themselves sort of infinitely um complex if you will and have so many facets to it then you know just take the idea of of how you how you initially engage with a buyer you know your first conversation you had somebody write me this last week and say actually i guess a week ago saying hey um What's the best first question to use with a buyer and in your initial meeting? And it's a great question, right? But it's one of those questions we could write volumes over and never really get perhaps the right answer for, for everybody, right? Because based on your personality type and who you are and being authentic to yourself, your question is necessarily going to be different than mine. And yet we might... Both use our different questions to the same positive effect. So I think that that's a long way of answering. <laughs> Perhaps we're explaining is that even the basics themselves just take a lifetime to master. You know, it's it's like the game of golf. I mean, I I know I'm not a huge golfer. I'm not a huge golfer, but I enjoy playing. But I but I understand. You know, I've played enough. But it's the same. Could be as true almost any sport, right? Is I mean, I've, I've been a, I've been a swimmer for you know fifty plus years now, and every time I get in the pool, I work on my stroke. Right? I mean, I work to perfect my technique. You'd think, okay, I'd have it by now, but yeah, you know, you're sort of constantly, and so I think, and it's just the basics. So I, that's to me is the fascinating part of the business we're in is that you know seven and a half billion people in the world, and you know you do the math, and there's quadrillions of the different possibilities of you know two people meeting and you know how do you what do you say to stimulate the interest in the other person make that connection that engagement so did i confuse you no you <laughs> when i swim i'm not i do sometimes try to improve my stroke but sometimes i just swim yeah yeah true i've got enough challenges and things i'm working on i feel like meh my stroke can go to pot. It doesn't matter. But I would, I would ask is, you know, when you, because certainly I, I do this, when I'm, every time I talk to a, a prospect and I'm finished, don't you think about what you could do better the next time? Yes. Yeah. So but, not when, but not when I swim. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. About- <laughs> All right. So let's go back to sales. So, <laughs> so, but the point is, is I think that the, those, in my in my experience, and who really succeed is they're constantly practicing the basics. I think that's and but absolutely. they're constantly learning about the basics. Is is they never assume that they know the basics because I think it's, it's sort of the misnomer, right? We talk about the fundamentals and so on, but the fundamentals in themselves have so many intricacies and nuances that that we put our own spin onto. That yeah, anything I can learn about how to connect with another person or you know, inspire interest or any of those basics. Hey, I'm anxious to learn because I'm still trying to get better at it. Yeah, to have a mindset of a learner is a great gift. And if you forget things, like when you get older. <laughs> you like get to you, learn them again. <laughs> like you just keep learning the same things over and over. And it's like, oh my God, it's a new day. It's it really is. a gift. It's a gift. Well, I, 
so something I'd written recently about trust, and I use this acronym for the four pillars of trust called MICE, M-I-C-E. I love it. And motives, integrity, competence, and execution. And somebody talked about, sent me a comment on LinkedIn about how much they liked it. And I sort of admitted, I said, you know, the fact is I, I think of acronyms more these days as I get older because they help me remember things. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't have to admit that, but it's okay. We're here among friends. We're here among, no one's going to share this, right? So We're here among friends. But they are good devices. So They're Really good devices. All right. Boy, we, we, as always, started at point A. Ended at Q. Ended at Q, yeah. The the definitely didn't take the shortest line between two points, but fascinating as always. So as always. Bridget? Andy. Great to talk with you. As always. We will talk to you next week. Friends, thank you for joining us. We'll talk to you next week. Okay, friends, that was Accelerate for the week. First of all, I want to thank you for joining me. And I want to thank my guest, John Asher. And as always, I want to thank my great friend, Bridget Gleason. Join me again next week as I welcome Joe Dalton to Accelerate. Now we're going to be talking about the optimum mindset for sales success. Now, before you go, don't forget to check out The Sales House, the only all-in-one sales education accelerator for B2B sellers. That's visit saleshouse.com forward slash accelerate. Take advantage of our special $1 trial offer for listeners of Accelerate. Thanks again for joining me. I'm Andy Paul. Until next week, good selling, everyone. <laughs>